Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series called Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Gym Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Novel. I knew I wanted to be a writer very early in life. By the time I was seven years old, There were no more dreams of being a cowgirl in outer space. Instead, I pretended to smoke pencils over imaginary typewriters. I've always been a voracious reader, and I soon gravitated toward the writers of the Harlem Renaissance. That cultural movement of the 1920s and 30s that established Black Americans as tastemakers, especially in regards to the arts. During one of my more rebellious moments of junior high school, I wrote out the full poem of Harlem Renaissance writer Claude McKay's If We Must Die on my homeroom's chalkboard. If we must die, let it not be like hogs, hunted and pinned in an inglorious spot. It's a poem of defiance. Basically, if we go out, we're not going out like a bunch of suckers. That day in homeroom, I was fascinated by this era of the past, and it was helping me aspire toward an imaginary future for myself. I saw the Harlem Renaissance as the epitome of what an artist community could look like. I like to tell people, welcome to Harlem. Are you local? I pop into Harlem every now and then because there is, <laughs> it's, you know, it's like an hour on the train. <laughs> Even though I've been living in New York for over six years, I've yet to do any official tourist thing like take a guided walk through Harlem. So I went uptown and let a professional show me around. I like to tell people no place in the world has contributed more to American history and world history than Harlem. When I first caught up to my tour guide, Carolyn Johnson, I knew I'd be in good hands. Tall and slim, Carolyn was dressed simply for a warm day of walking, jeans, a light denim jacket, and sensible shoes. She was on the phone, ironing out a little business wrinkle while indicating I should approach her, 
and while speaking to folks passing by. Excuse me, miss. How you doing, baby? I'm good, yourself? <laughs> she radiated all the energy of a quintessential multitasking New Yorker. And you're born and raised in Harlem? Yeah. I couldn't think of living anyplace else. <laughs> it's a beautiful neighborhood. Yeah. I was really excited about the tour, but also afraid I'd be disappointed. Time and gentrification aren't friendly to historically Black neighborhoods. I didn't want to see a slick coffee shop that doesn't take cash standing in the place where the activist Marcus Garvey may have delivered Pan-African speeches or where writer Nella Larson may have once typed out her manuscript for passing. Instead, I got to see that a lot of buildings remain virtually unchanged, like the building where activist poet James Weldon Johnson and his brother Jay Rosamond Johnson wrote Lift Every Voice and Sing. James Weldon Johnson? It took my breath to learn that the ashes of Langston Hughes, one of the most prominent voices of the Harlem Renaissance, are interred in the floor of the Schomburg Center for Research in Black Culture. In between Lennox and Seven, we had over 130 restaurants, bars, speakeasies, churches, and establishments. I saw the home of jazz pioneer Fats Waller, the studio of the great photographer James Vanderzee. So on this street down the block is where Billie Holiday was discovered. It's still standing. It's known as Bill's place today, Bill Saxon. As the tour continued, I realized I was hearing a lot of names I already knew and not the one I was hoping to learn more about. I was walking the same streets Eunice Hudson once walked, but my tour guide hadn't mentioned her yet. Where was Eunice? You have 133rd Street, Swing Street. They called it Jungle Alley, and that's where the real party was. What did she get into as a young woman fresh out of college? Where did she sweat her hair out? I came to Harlem hoping for a glimpse of Eunice and the neighborhood she moved to in the 1920s, which quickly became her playground in the vibrancy of her youth and would go on to be her home for the majority of her life. But amongst this celebration of Harlem's past, the ghost of her memory seemed determined to stay just out of reach. That is, until I asked my tour guide Carolyn about a particular building, 409 Edgecombe Avenue. It wasn't a stop on the tour. We can go up there. You can take that two bus right up there, drop you right off in front of it. Of course, Carolyn knew of it. Thurgood Marshall, W.B. Du Bois, Walter White. That was like the it building. Ever since the 1920s, the movers and shakers of Harlem had lived at 409 Edgecombe Avenue. One day, that would include Eunice, too. When I think about Eunice, it can feel like someone is humming a few bars of a song I used to know, but now I can't remember the lyrics. But here, finally, was a glimpse of Eunice. Like always, perpetually just around the next corner, out of reach, and a little overshadowed by her neighbors, but still here amidst the Harlem Renaissance. Here, this is where we live. This is where it all happened. From the teams at iHeartRadio and Novel, I'm Nicole Perkins, and this is The Godmother.
Episode 2, Harlem Zarina. Tucked between funeral notices and municipal updates of a 1923 edition of the Yonkers Herald is a small article. It's an announcement. 9,000 invitations have been issued for the largest Black wedding ever held in the country. The bride-to-be is the prominent and extremely wealthy socialite, Miss May Walker Robinson. Her grandmother, Madam C.J. Walker, is a hair care product pioneer and the first American female entrepreneur of any race to become a millionaire. The Walker Robinsons were a big deal in Harlem, 1923. And the wedding makes headlines across the country, especially in the Black press. All of these other Black institutions of the public sphere in the 20s and 30s look to the Black press to sort of keep their pulse on what is hot and sexy culturally, but also what is hot in terms of politics. It's where the stage is being set for who the movers and shakers in the society people are. Eunice had been a socialite herself from a young age. The Huntons didn't have the Walker Robinson's wealth, but her parents were still very much a part of the Black social elite. In an article from the New York Age in 1923, there's a picture of Mae Walker Robinson on her wedding day. Seated in her wedding dress, surrounded by bridesmaids and flower girls in glossy, sheer, decadent, bright dresses, replete with headdresses and bouquets. And if you look closely, there, in the back row, among a line of other women honored with the role of bridesmaid, Second from the right, head turned slightly, eyes on something just beyond the camera, is Eunice Hunton. It's not clear whether Eunice and May would have really been friends if the number of bridesmaids is anything to go by, but her inclusion was a mark of her emerging importance in this elite circle. Eunice was slotting into the highfalutin social circle of Black women, sometimes referred to as the Tsarinas. Their every move was covered breathlessly by the Black press at the time, read not just by New Yorkers, but by Black people all across the country. Whose wedding were they at? What were they wearing? Where did they dine that evening? And in the next breath, a really cutting line about a choice that they made, either politically, professionally, or in terms of what they wore even. They have to be exemplars, they're supposed to be exceptional, and they're also supposed to be engaging in behaviors that help further the race, right? There isn't a lot of space for people to just be individuals and say, oh, I don't care about that race thing over there. With William and Addie Hunton as parents, Eunice would have been better prepared than most for this kind of pressure. She had already lived a truly exceptional life. After fleeing the terrors of the 1906 Atlanta race massacre as a young girl, she'd lived in Germany, attended a predominantly white college and graduated with two degrees, all by the time she arrived in Harlem, age 25. It's possible that Eunice's class in education made her a little sheltered at first. I think she didn't know what to expect in the real world. It wasn't a matter of just living in Harlem. It was a matter of going out in the community because that was her job. Pretty soon after graduating, Eunice took up a job as a social worker with family services in New York and New Jersey. 
work would bring her in contact with a whole new sphere of Black life. By the 1920s, Harlem was referred to as being like the capital of the Black world. All right, so picture it. Mid-1920s Harlem. It's Sunday morning. Eunice Hunton, 25 years old, a social worker, a socialite. She leaves her trendy apartment and walks south to 135th Street. Or maybe she takes the number three train and uses the minutes she saves to stand in awe of the magic of the Black Mecca that sits before her. She would have seen on one corner Black communists standing on a soapbox talking about the revolution. On the other soapbox across the corner, she would have seen traditional politicians urging African Americans to leave the Republican Party and come join the Democratic Party. On the third street corner, she would have seen a religious figure, maybe the guy called the Barefoot Prophet, who was telling everyone they better get with Jesus right away or they're going to be going to hell. And on the fourth corner, those would have been the race nationalists. The community of Harlem, unlike many of the spaces Eunice must have been used to by that time, was full of diverse Black life. You know, Harlem becomes this place where African-Americans have a chance to remake themselves all over again. Securing better jobs, better wages, and even housing conditions is all really a dream for many people. But many of those new arrivals to the neighborhood soon found themselves falling into systemic traps which don't sound all that different from the racism Eunice and her family had left in the South. Those dreams are complicated by Jim Crow North. They're complicated by police violence. They are complicated by the threat of public violence on the street. Between 1910 and 1930, the number of Black people living in just that one and a half square mile of central Harlem increased eight times over from a little over 18,000 to nearly 150,000. The Big Apple offered new beginnings and opportunities. There are countless shops, clubs, tenement housing buildings. Harlem is kind of like a melting pot. So, as Eunice walks up 135th Street that Sunday morning, she can see every facet of Black life on one corner. From the Black elite in fur coats, New, ready-to-wear dresses off the rack. People at the time got very dressed up. Working-class women in freshly laundered hand-me-downs and darned stockings. Donning the best that they have in their closet. All the good-time boys and girls in their flashiest silks and softest hankies. It was part of the whole atmosphere where you wore wonderful clothes. You know, you wanted to impress each other. When I think about the hair of 1920s Harlem, I think of the expression, fried, dyed, and laid to the side. Keeping straight hair was a matter of pride and professionalism, regardless of the kind of job you had. Finger waves and big body bobs were all the rage. Kinks and tight curls weren't appreciated as much as they are today. We also see women donning, like, not necessarily afros, but natural hair, meaning no chemicals. And you may see women with pressed hair. I avoided moving to New York for as long as I could. I didn't think my country self could handle all the excitement. Sometimes I can't. But I hope Eunice fully enjoyed all that nighttime Harlem had to offer with red lipstick, finger waves, and a breezy dress made to flutter around the Charleston and Lindy Hop all night. Moving to Harlem, especially at this point in its history and at the age Eunice was, 
must have felt exciting. What would those communists, preachers, partiers, and fur coat-wearing socialites rushing by have seen when they looked back at Eunice? I like to think she was the kind of young woman who yearned to be at the center of all this action. I like to think that she felt herself to be at the foot of a great hill. But did she know yet which path would lead her into her new life? For now, Eunice's parents had offered her a roadmap of sorts. But the glamour of the Harlem Renaissance must have exerted a powerful pull. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpert. It's just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut, and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, this is Paris Hilton. Trapped in Treatment is back, and this season we're taking on Wasp. They held us in dog cages. They starved us. They beat us. They burned us and subject us to really horrible, uh, cruel and unusual punishment. After my personal experience at Provo Canyon School, I was shocked to learn that a man named Robert Litchfield, a man who got his start at the school that I went to, would go on to create a multi-million dollar empire. He was trying to brand us. So we were going to become the McDonald's in treatment. The Worldwide Association of Specialty Programs and Schools. They prey on 
you know, a parent's really natural and beautiful love for their children in a really, really, unfortunately, effective way. At this time in my life now, if someone presented this program to me, and not just because I've already experienced it, sham, scam, beware. Listen to season two of Trapped in Treatment on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. There's a writer of the Harlem Renaissance era that reminds me of Eunice, Zora Neale Hurston. In Zora Neale Hurston's fiction, with her anthropological attention to dialogue, I found images of the women elders in my family. She made me want to know more about my family members' internal worlds and wonder what they may have seen. Her novel, Their Eyes Were Watching God, made me realize my elders had whole lives before I knew them. It seems silly, but when you're young, you know your grandmother as grandmama and never think about the idea that at some point in her life, she may have taken a much younger lover who filled her with renewed passion, like in the book. With Zora Neale Hurston, it wasn't just her writings I latched onto. It was also the story of her life. During the Harlem Renaissance, she was a prolific writer and anthropologist, but in 1960, she died broke, in obscurity, and was buried in an unmarked grave. In 1973, renowned writer Alice Walker, author of The Color Purple, located her grave and helped bring Hurston's literary career back to the public eye, and it stayed there. How could someone like Zora, who was once one of the most popular Black women in the country, disappear from history so easily. Eunice and Zora were both outspoken and determined, traits not often appreciated in Black women. But there's another comparison between the two. Ever since her arrival in Harlem in the mid-20s, Eunice hadn't just been absorbing the sights and sounds and smells of her surroundings. She took to her typewriter with thin ivory sheets of paper and began writing about them. 1925, The Corner, by Eunice Carter. My friend lives in the house on the corner. She lives high above the street in a doll's house of white enamel and soft blues, with lovely old furniture and oriental rugs of faded brilliance on dark, polished floors. In a miniature home with a real fireplace and polished grasses and flowers all about in crystal bowls. She lives high up there, but below are the street and the avenue. And one fall night, as I waited for her in the loveliest room of all, I turned from watching the fire flicker and dart across the room and great chrysanthemums casting sleeping shadows on the wall. I turned from this and watched the street. It was alive with light and sound. The light and sound of the city. The black city. The piece you just heard is called The Corner. It was written and published in 1925. In it, 
Eunice is writing an insider's account documenting the sensual experiences of living in the neighborhood, sights and sounds that might go unnoticed by visiting outsiders. Eunice's early writings offer a unique perspective to who she was. Her professional and activist writings show a determined, educated, even commanding woman. And when you add the wings of creativity... Her short stories were wonderful. They were celebrated by some of the most prominent writers in Harlem. She, for instance, would go to some of the cocktail gatherings, and it was important to her because you couldn't just show up. You had to be invited. People would get dressed up. These were the top artists of the era. And she became part of that because of her writing. Eunice Hunton is not a name I remember reading about in the library. I'd like to think that it's because the era was so full of great talent and the world was moving so fast at the time that some people fell through history's cracks. But in this moment of history, it feels especially important to actively remember Black luminaries. When I was growing up, Zora Neale Hurston's Their Eyes Were Watching God was taught in sophomore English classes all over America. But as I speak, Black history is being erased from schools across the country. Who's to say that Zora Neale Hurston's work won't be buried again? Writers' works frequently get lost to the ravages of time. And I wonder if Eunice used her fiction, her articles and reviews, as a way of carving her name into history's tree trunk. Eunice was here. Maybe I'm projecting. Because as a writer myself... I hope my work will last and that someone 100, 200 years from now will scroll through the library catalog, shipped into their left pinky finger probably, and see my name and know I existed. In 1925, Eunice had another piece of writing published. But this time, unlike The Corner, it was an essay. And unlike The Corner, it shows that Eunice was looking out to a world beyond Harlem. It was called Breaking Through. Harlem is a modern ghetto. True, that is a contradiction in terms. But prejudice has ringed this group with invisible lines and bars. Within the bars, you will find a small city, self-sufficient, complete in itself, a riot of color and personality, a medley of song and tears, a canvas of browns and golds and flaming reds, and yet bound. There is also some tugging from without at the ropes that bind the ghetto. It is the result of the efforts of the whites because of curiosity, self-interest, a spasm of self-righteousness, or, very rarely, genuine interest, to establish a contact with those within the ghetto. In the essay, Eunice argues in favor of those who often appear, in the first instance, to be deserting the race and talks about those striving to be the first to accomplish something. Whereas many who break the bonds are actuated solely by the desire to get the best for themselves in spite of prescription, a few realize that they are blazing a trail that others of the race may follow. The essay goes on. There is another side of the picture. It is a tale of long, dark years of dismal failure, 
of brave struggles to rise above mediocrity, of bitter fights for existence, a tale twisted with heartaches and heartbreaks, a tale drenched in sweat and blood, but still shot through with flashes of sunlight upon pure gold. It takes rare courage to fight a fight that more often than not ends in death, poverty, or prostitution of genius. But it is to these who make this fight, despite the tremendous odds, despite the deterring pessimism of those who see the tangle of prejudice that surrounds the ghetto, a hopeless barrier, that we must look for the breaking of the bonds now linked together by ignorance and misunderstanding. It's a righteous essay. It feels autobiographical and maybe even a bit self-aggrandizing and smug. Like she was telling her readers, get like me, kids, as if you can. But it seems to show Eunice starting to turn away from the riot of color and personality to pursue other goals. You can tell from reading Breaking Through that Eunice was deeply concerned with the idea of her own legacy. And it's interesting to think about it in the context of where Eunice's life was at in 1925 when she wrote this as a 26-year-old. You see, she did not sign the essay Breaking Through with the name Eunice Hunton. She signed it Eunice Hunton Carter because by 1925, Eunice was married. She lived in a society where women married and had children. That was the way it was. Writer, social worker, socialite, and now wife. But these roles weren't keeping her satisfied. I think Eunice did feel very strongly about being a role model. She wrote about it, how it's very important to accomplish things so people who come behind you know This is a woman, this is a Black person, and she's very successful. I can be that way, too. By this point in Eunice's life, she's clearly been formulating a plan. Looking back now, breaking through can be seen as a roadmap she'd written for herself. It outlined a strategy that Eunice would continually use throughout her life especially the decisions she would make in the final years of the Roaring Twenties. She wanted to be different. She wanted to be a trailblazer. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. Just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, My name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And, of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, this is Paris Hilton. Trapped in Treatment is back, and this season we're taking on Wasp. They held us in dog cages. They starved us. They beat us. They burned us and subject us to really horrible, uh, cruel and unusual punishment. After my personal experience at Provo Canyon School, I was shocked to learn that a man named Robert Litchfield, a man who got his start at the school that I went to, would go on to create a multi-million dollar empire. He was trying to brand us, so we were going to become the McDonald's in treatment. The Worldwide Association of Specialty Programs and Schools. They prey on, you know, a parent's really natural and beautiful love for their children in a really, really, unfortunately, effective way. At this time in my life now, if someone presented this program to me, and not just because I've already experienced it, sham, scam, beware. Listen to season two of Trapped in Treatment on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's 1923. Eunice meets a wealthy man, and his name is Lyle Carter. He was born and raised in Barbados. Lyle arrived in New York City in 1913 and evolved into a prominent figure in Harlem, too. In a more understated way than Eunice, he'd built his wealth through a successful dental practice. Eunice married Lyle in 1924. She and her husband lived in this beautiful house in Harlem, and they liked to entertain. Their wedding had been a small, intimate affair, a far cry from the lavish Mae Robinson Walker extravaganza. A year or two later, they have a child. They named that child Lyle Carter Jr. Eunice's mother, Addie, when touring the country for work, had written extensively on the roles and responsibilities of Black women in American society. Their roles both at home and in public, while their husbands lead the family. And Eunice's work does take a backseat to Lyle's at this time. In the 1925 census, while she's publishing writing as well as holding down a social work career, Lyle is listed as a dentist 
and Eunice's occupation is simply housewife. I imagine this must have rubbed Eunice the wrong way. Eunice and Lyle would hold social events together, and they'd often have people over. I mean, the parties they had in their house, that meant a lot to them. I think that bound them, their devotion to Harlem. They were very well known in the community, as you can imagine. The pair of them looked good together. On the surface, it probably seemed ideal. Eunice and Lyle entertaining the who's who of the Harlem Renaissance in their family home. Does Ornell Hurston ever pop by? But scratch that surface. There were rumors that Eunice had had an affair at some point with a musician. One of the writers of the era mentioned in a letter that she thought Eunice might be gay, which who knows? I mean, those were the rumors. But what do they speak to? They speak to the fact that maybe her marriage was not the best. For all of her mother Addie's advocacy on the role of Black women in America, her daughter Eunice Hunton Carter still yearned for more. Thanks in part to Addie. In many ways, she was a maverick, and Addie, her mother, instilled this in her because Addie was a bit of a maverick. In her own time as a young mother, Addie had traveled the Deep South alone, documenting atrocities. She'd gone to Germany with her young family to pursue her own education. And later, she'd returned to Europe to advocate for Black soldiers on the front lines of World War I. All remarkable, exceptional feats. She never let being a mother stand in the way of her ambition, and neither would her daughter. Eunice was doing social work. She was writing. She married, and she had a son, was a good mother, a good wife. But I think she wanted to act on the world and to be influential and known in a different way than she would have been as a writer and a social worker. So this was a tension, I think, in her whole life, because she was very well-educated. She was very smart. And she desired to make a greater contribution, to have a greater impact. By 1927, Eunice was 28 years old and now on the inside looking outside of the Black city. And her experiences had made Eunice almost uniquely prepared for the consequences of the decision she made next. Eunice was able to venture into the white realm. In 1927, with a young child and a fledgling writing career, Eunice decided to go back to school, law school. Social work was very important work, but there were a lot of women and Black women doing social work at the time, and that was not the case at all in law. From this point in her life forward, Eunice Hunton Carter would leave writing behind. She would never publish another piece of creative writing. I wouldn't be surprised if she just felt like, okay, I'm leaving that part of my life behind in order to become a lawyer, or just, you know, stopped because she didn't have time to do it anymore. Law was a place where she could really distinguish herself. Although she had to have known it was going to be an uphill climb. And Eunice isn't the only one about to undergo a major transition. As the Roaring Twenties start to draw to a close, Harlem itself is changing. And as it does, a different side of this world is about to come into view. Eunice may have thought she'd seen a lot of what Harlem had to offer. The glitz, 
the glamour, the tradition, and the struggle of those she walked alongside. But there were other layers to it, too. In Harlem and across the city, New York's underworld is about to rise closer to the surface. Lucky Luciano, an Italian immigrant, forms these different alliances. This is someone who is interested in really expanding his empire. So very much like other white racketeers, the millions of dollars that they had made during the late 1910s and throughout the 1920s dries up. So for many of them, they have to look for new avenues of income. That's coming up in episode three of The Godmother. On this episode of The Godmother, you heard Carolyn Johnson, my Harlem tour guide. Welcome to Harlem. That's the name of my company and stuff. I'm Professor Sarah Jackson. I'm a presidential associate professor at the Annenberg School for Communication at the University of Pennsylvania and an affiliate with the Africana and African-American Studies program here. I'm Marilyn Greenwald. I'm a professor emerita of journalism at Ohio University, and I'm the author of five biographies, including one of Eunice Hunton Carter. My name is LaShawn Harris. I am an associate professor of history at Michigan State University in the Department of History. I'm Jonathan Gill, and I'm a professor of humanities at Amsterdam University College in the Netherlands and the author of Harlem, the only complete history of uptown Manhattan. My name's Leah Carter. I am Eunice Carter's great-granddaughter. My dad, Stephen Carter, wrote the book Invisible, the forgotten story of the black woman lawyer who took down America's most famous mobster, and I did a lot of the research for that book. My name is Dr. Clarissa Myrick Harris, and I am a tenured professor of Africana Studies at Morehouse College in Atlanta, Georgia. The Godmother is produced by Novel for iHeartRadio. For more from Novel, visit novel.audio. The Godmother is hosted and written by me, Nicole Perkins. Our producer is Leona Hamid. Additional production from Adjua Jima Brimpong, Ronald Young Jr., and Zayana Youssef. Our editor is Adjua Jima Brimpong. Additional story editing from Max O'Brien and Maithili Rao. And our researcher is Zayana Youssef. Additional research from Mohammed Ahmed. David Waters is our executive producer. Field production by Tanita Romani and Palace Shaw. Sound design, mixing, and scoring by Nicholas Alexander and Daniel Kempson. Our score was written, performed, and recorded by Jeff Parker. Music supervision by Nicholas Alexander and David Waters. Production management and endless patience from Cherie Houston, Sarah Tobin, and Charlotte Wolf. Fact-checking by Findle Fulton and Danya Suleiman. Story development by Madeline Parr, Jess Swinburne, and Zayana Youssef. Willard Foxton is our creative director of development. Special thanks to Leah Carter, Stephen Carter, Angela J. Davis, Andrew Fernley, Marilyn Greenwald, Sandra Lebedee, Catherine Godfrey, Nadia Mady, Amalia Sortland, Sean Glenn, Neil Krishnan, Julia Bromberg, Katrina Norvell, Carly Frankel, and all the team at WME.
novel. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series called Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, this is Paris Hilton. Trapped in Treatment is back, and this season we're taking on WASP, the worldwide association of specialty programs and schools. They held us in dog cages. They starved us. They beat us. Was trying to brand us. We were going to become the McDonald's in treatment. Join my host as they unravel the story of the largest and most shocking organization in the history of the troubled teen industry. Listen to season two of Trapped in Treatment on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.